You're listening to the Theology Mom podcast. And now, here's Theology Mom, Krista Bontrager. Good evening, everyone. Happy Tuesday. And thank you for joining me for tonight's conversation. I'm so glad you're here. I know it's been a minute uh, since I've done a live stream. I think the last one I did was with Chuck Gerard. And then we did some traveling and then I was sick. <laughs> so it's been it's been a little adventure. So I'm going to try to get through this without coughing. We'll see what happens. If I pick up the fan, that's Bob's cue to mute me. <laughs> a cough. So, uh, yeah, we'll just see how it goes tonight. But I um, thought it would be fun to do a live Q&A show. I haven't done one ever. And uh, Bob's always encouraging me to try it. So we're going to do this. So. Uh, This will be your opportunity to ask me questions about God, the Bible, and real life. A few of you have sent in questions ahead of time, and we're going to go out to Zoom in just a couple of minutes here and hear from the first person. And then also a couple of you sent in Facebook questions. We can try to get to those, but I want to hear from you in the chat. Uh, You can... Uh, send your your uh, questions in on the chat on YouTube works the best. It's easiest. Facebook is a little more clunky. I might not see it, but I'll do my best. Um, so want to say hi to everyone and uh, want to thank Jennifer Bytel for jumping in as a moderator tonight. So glad Jennifer's here to help me out. And Laura Hartley is over moderating on Facebook on the Facebook streams. Glad to see everyone. Oh, thank you, Rachel. Appreciate it. So yeah, uh, there's a lot happening for me right now. <laughs> so throughout the broadcast tonight, I'm also going to give some updates. And so you'll want to stay tuned for all of those and finding out what is happening at the ministry. Um, maybe a good place to begin is to let you know that I am now taking speaking requests for the later in the summer and the fall months. Uh, If you'd like to get me out to talk to your women's conference, maybe your women's retreat, uh, maybe you're an administrator at a Christian school, you want to know how to train your teachers or your students in worldview issues. Maybe you're looking for a, a workshop for your homeschool group, whatever creative idea you have, send it my way. Just go to my website, theologymom.com backslash speaking, and you can get the process started. I have a few ideas for topics on that page, but um, if you've heard me do a live stream on something that you'd like me to turn into a talk, I'm always up for that discussion. So yeah, so just go ahead and put your question in the chat, and um, Bob will be watching those and try to help help me with um getting those up on the screen. So I've got one from Facebook to get us started here. All right. How do we make sure that we are interpreting scripture correctly and not putting our own culture into it? It's a very good question. Um, this is the, this is an important question because we are all in our different cultures, right? And no matter where you live in the world, you are part of a culture. You might even be part of multiple cultures. So I, as an American, am impacted by American culture. Uh, I've grown up in the church, so I kind of also have this little churchy evangelical culture mindset. 
um, you know, my family history might play into my cultural um, mindset as well. So we all have assumptions that we walk around with every day. We might not be consciously aware of them, but they're, they are there. And so kind of this is a two-step process when you are studying the Bible. So the first kind of step that you want to engage in is trying to understand the Bible on its own terms. And a really good way of doing that that I have found over the years is asking a lot of questions of the text. Asking, when you read through the text, first of all, reading in big chunks. Don't read just verses. Read a chunk, read a chapter, read around the chapter, what came before, what came after. Try to figure out the author's flow of what's happening. That will help you a lot. But then also asking questions of the text. Why is this here? Where does this happen? Is the location significant? Here's a pro tip. Geography is also is often very important in how we interpret scripture. So you want to bombard the text with lots and lots and lots of questions. Okay. So that's on, on that side of it is you want to look at the text in as much detail as you can and looking at the surrounding context and asking a lot of questions about the text. The other half of the equation is exegeting your culture. So you're going to exegete the scripture, but you also want to exegete your culture. You want to spend some time becoming aware of your beliefs, of things that you take for granted, uh, beliefs that maybe you don't even think about and start questioning, you know, like, well, why do I believe that? Do I believe that because I'm an American or because I'm a Christian? Why does this matter to me? Why do I put value and importance on this? Um, does that really actually come from scripture or is that a cultural value? Is that even maybe as part of my family culture? You know, sometimes we have family understandings and family beliefs that influence and impact how we see the world. And we can actually overlay those on the text. So we have to spend some time exegeting our culture and looking at our pre-understandings. So I have spent, you know, a significant amount of time and investment in reading books about American culture and trying to understand, you know, what parts of my worldview do I get from my culture? but also looking at the text because ultimately the way that we compensate for being in our culture is by our ultimate goal is to get to the author's meaning of the text. That's where we want to arrive. So I hope that helps. It's a very brief answer. I'm going to ask our moderators to put a link in the comments to a show that Monique and I did last fall on how to interpret the Bible. It's a past episode of our podcast. And if you'd like to dig even deeper than that, um, a registration is now open for the online version of my class on how to interpret the Bible. It's called How to Really Interpret the Bible, and it's available through my little mini ministry school uh, called Two Worlds Ministry School. You can go there. It's twoworlds.teachable.com. 
and um, you can enroll in the course, How to Really Interpret the Bible. It's 14 lessons. You can get all the video teachings, the printable lecture notes. You can follow along with the homework assignments. All the costs and the details are there. If you go check that out, I think it's $75 or something. And then I'll enroll you in the class. So you can read some amazing student testimonials there and all about the class. So that would be a great way uh, to help resource you for further conversation. Okay, while we're waiting for our first Zoom question, do we have anything coming in on the, um, on the chat? Let's see what, all right. Lori is asking, can you explain the old earth perspective on creation? Uh, yeah, I know a, a couple of things about that. Oh, thank you, Lori. Your hermeneutics class has been great for healing me with this great course. Thank you very much. Um, okay, so the old earth perspective on creation in a really kind of nutshell fashion is um, there's kind of three basic Christian positions for how to come at the question of interpreting Genesis and integrating that with the record of nature. So some Christians hold to an idea of looking at Genesis 1 as reflecting six 24-hour days, and they tend to believe that the earth is about six to 10,000 years old. Old earth creationists, and that's what my personal position is, I'm an old earth creationist, and so I believe that um, the Bible allows for a literal interpretation of those days in Genesis 1 as being long periods of time. Uh, I've written an entire book about that. You can go check that out uh, through uh, my employer if you'd like to. It's called The Bigger Picture on Creation, and it's an inductive Bible study on Genesis 1 and 2. And so I would say that um, I hold to the conventional age of the universe but I do believe that God has intervened. I, I don't believe in evolution. I believe in God's miraculous creation in that he has uh, miraculously and repeatedly intervened um, in creation and that Adam and Eve are miraculous and special creations of God. A third position is what's called theistic evolution. Sometimes it's called a continuous creationist position. And they would hold more to a view that God set things up initially, and then he has allowed them to unfold. And so it's sort of a view of God-guided evolution. They would say that God used the mechanism of evolution to bring about the diversity that we see in the history of life. So those are the three basic positions. And, um, there's a great talk that I did last July over at the reasons.org uh, reasons to believe YouTube channel on unity in creation on um, like 10 or 12 points that I think that Christians can actually agree on when it comes to creation. I think so often we start the conversation from a posture of what we disagree on, but I think it's much more helpful to start the conversation on those, those beliefs that, Christians ought to have in common and what are those essentials when it comes to creation. So hopefully that helps you out, Lori, and um, answering your question. Okay, so let's go to our first Zoom call. Let's go to our Zoom person. 
the lovely and gracious Allison. Can you hear me? Okay, hold on. I got to figure out the, uh, <laughs> I didn't have any uh, prep time. Sorry. That's okay. You're, you're here. All right. While you're figuring out the camera. Yes. Yeah, we'll go to. Well, I can start with my first question. All right, go ahead. Yeah. All right. Okay. So um, just as a resource to all of us, um, if you could tell us your top five books that every Christian should have hmm. in their library and why? Oh, wow. Top five books that I would recommend for a Christian library. That's a very good question. Um, definitely my number one, I, I'm assuming we're all going to assume the Bible. Okay. So uh, let's, let's yeah. move on with the more pedantic additions to the library. Well, definitely number one on my list would be How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth by Gordon Fee and Doug Stewart. Um, it's the foundation for my Bible interpretation class. I've referred that book to thousands of people over the years. It's a very helpful book. Um, if you don't know where to start on how to study the Bible, it's a good kind of crash course on getting you oriented to some basics. So definitely that one would be at the top of my list. Um, probably a book uh, looking at, boy, I'm tr trying to think of like the ones that I've recommended the most over the years. Probably Carl Payne's book on spiritual warfare. I get a lot of questions, believe it or not, on both sides, like from people that are sort of skeptical about supernatural things, but they want to know more. Um, they want something biblically focused. Um, and then charismatics who have, people have grown up in a charismatic church, but they're concerned about excesses. I find that Carl Payne's book on spiritual warfare is a very helpful and biblically balanced view of that issue. And I've recommended that book to many people over the years. Many people have reported back to me how helpful that book is. And so I would probably um, recommend something along that line uh, for something on s spiritual issues. Um, boy, I don't know if I could come up with five, Allison. You really put me on the spot. Uh, I think a book on basic theology would be my friend Ken Sample's book, Without a Doubt. Okay. That's a very helpful book because he goes through 20 questions that are very common that Christians ask about the faith. And um, it's it's just a... It's a very accessible book. So if you've never read a book on on systematic theology before, it's a good on-ramp to that. And really any book by Ken Samples, you are going to um, be in good stead. Like I, uh, Ken has probably been the most influential theologian on my life. And so if you enjoy my teachings, um, you're probably going to like Ken Samples' books. He's written many, many books over the course of his career, but without a doubt, it's probably my favorite. And I have a teaching series on my channel called Christianity 101 that kind of corresponds to that book. So that's a really helpful, helpful book. Um, if All you're right. wanting, yeah, go ahead. Well, I was just, I mean, if you had another one, go for it. But I was just going to, I had one more question. Yeah, go for it. Go for your second question. Okay. I, I, oh, here we go. Here we go. I think I found, here I am. Okay. <laughs> Goodness gracious. Um, 
Okay, so my next question is regarding um, the Bible. So whenever I am thinking about just any questions or doubts um, that might come up for me just regarding my faith, and it, it seems to come back to that. So when I'm sitting down, you know, to read the Bible, it's like, that's the question that I come back to is how do I know that the words that I'm reading on the page are the actual words from God? Um, so just kind of thinking about when, you know, with, in the Old Testament, you know, Moses wrote such and such books. Okay, then you move on and, um, you know, in the Gospels, you have the Gospel writers and then Paul. So anyway, just um, I guess the process of how to be sure um, that it's, you know, the legit word of God and that we can trust that process and, what in the canon, like how the canon was put together and, yeah. and questions of that nature. Okay. So basically what you're asking about is a question related to the origin and history of the Bible and related to the accuracy of the preservation of scripture. So I might recommend it's an older book, but it's very accessible for a beginner it is a book called the origin of the Bible. And um, it's, it it's not a seminary level textbook. I would, characterize it more as like a college level, highly accessible for a, for a lay person. It'll give you a good overview. Now it's not going to give you all the gory details mm-hmm. <laughs> of, of it, but it'll give you a good solid overview of the origin and history of the Bible. Um, it'll talk to you about the canon and the preservation of scripture. Now, if you want something a little bit deeper about how do I know that the words on the page are the ones that Paul and Moses really wrote. Um, That book would be more like Bruce Metzger of the, I think it's called the Corruption, Preservation and Restoration of the Bible or something. And Metzger taught at Princeton and he was really kind of the foremost authority on um, textual criticism. Now that's going to be more academic but it's mm-hmm. going to walk you through um, how the Bible was copied, transmitted, preserved, and corrupted and restored. And you'll have a really good working knowledge of those issues after you read that book. So, or any other book by Bruce Metzger, really. So that those would be a couple of ways to resource yourself. Now, if you want a video format, you can go on my channel. I have a, a number of introductory kind of on-ramp videos to this topic. I think it's on the playlist called Christianity 101. Nice. Yeah. Uh, in the chat, Alicia O'Connell is saying that it's all in Christianity 101. <laughs> Very good. Well, thank you, Alicia. Nice. <laughs> awesome. awesome. Well, I want to say thanks to Allison. If you ever enjoy our show, you enjoy our show notes. Allison is the genius who <laughs> puts the show notes together for me every week. And she does such a great job with it. She also oversees all our moderators on the show. Without her, the podcast literally could not happen. So thank you so much for your service, Allison. Oh, you're welcome. It's my pleasure. All right, go make dinner. All right, thank you. Go hang out with your family. All right, take care. We'll see you. All right, let's go back out to the chat. All right, question on YouTube. How do you explain God's sovereignty or control to someone who is suffering when they have sinned against them? Yeah, it's a really good question. It's a tough question. Um, 
I, it's, you know, to be honest, it's, it's something that I still wrestle with. And, you know, I used to, because I used to be reformed and, and hold to a, a, a position of God's sovereignty, um, you know, those be more consistent with the Westminster Confession. Um, but I've kind of migrated away from that. I, you know, just being in very broad terms and that would probably be highly unsatisfying um, to answer your question. I would just say that the whole free will predestination debate is complicated because those terms are rarely defined. So let's take the term free will, for example. Well, free in what sense? Is it free, um, completely free, like apart from God? Well, yes and no. I mean, Jesus Christ reigns over all things. And so in that sense, he is reigning in the macro sense over all things. But he allows for human decision and moral choices and that some of those choices harm people. And I've harmed people. We've all harmed people. And so those choices, now, would I say that's technically free will? Well, that's a philosophical category. So I usually shy away from using the term free will for that because of that. So I prefer to call it, you know, moral choices. Now, do I believe that people can believe in Jesus and there has to be like some volitional response in that and and grasping for for God, yeah, I do. I I think that 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 is how I understand the scriptures. Um, now there are passages that you know I know Romans nine. You don't need to put it in the chat. I'm aware of Ephesians one. I know all the passages, but I just think that in the overall history of the church. Um, when you look at the question historically, people didn't uh, hold to the Westminster Confession version of sovereignty and free will until Calvin, unless you kind of look at Augustine as a precursor to that. Um, but, you know, there's historically, you know, when we look at the East, when we look at Catholicism and the medieval period, there's sort of this anomaly of Augustine, but I have a lot of questions about how this has been viewed historically. And historically, it's been more of an issue of God kind of knowing our choices and predestining us based on those choices. That's been the more historical position. Do I have all the details of that worked out? No, I don't. This is this is why I don't generally teach on this issue because this is something that I am still kind of working through in my own journey and walk. So it's probably a horribly unsatisfying answer for you, Tina, but that is um, the real about where I'm at in my own journey. So, okay. Uh, let's do one more question. GRS. What, how would we know what the mark of the beast is? Oh, Okay. I did a whole live stream about the Mark of the Beast about a year ago. So if you want to catch that on a replay, it was kind of when there was a lot of speculation about vaccines and were they the Mark of the Beast and all of that. So I did a live stream about it. 
and kind of went into a lot of detail. Um, but just the short version of it is if you look in the broader context of Revelation, um, there's a, the mark of the beast can't be taken in isolation. It, it's, it's to be compared and contrasted with the mark that's on God's people. And it's, it's a picture in the book of Revelation. It's, it's a symbol or an image of how people are marked. So to use the words of Paul in the book of Romans, there are people who are either in Adam or in Christ. Those are kind of the two groups from God's perspective. God doesn't see us, you know, he doesn't group us in terms of race, ethnicity, geography. He groups us from God's perspective in in Adam or in Christ. Well, in the book of Revelation, there's just a different way of understanding that. And there's this symbolism of God's people have a seal on their foreheads and the mark of the beast is a way of marking those who are in Adam or to use other words from Paul, they're far from the covenant, far from the life of God. Uh, However you want to say that they are outside of Christ. So as far as what the mark is, you know, that's a debated point, but I think it's important to understand the context of it is a meaning of um, it's, it's a meaning in the imagery of the book of revelation of a mark of who um, is differentiated from those who are in Christ or in Adam. Okay. But you can check out that live stream where I went into a lot more detail than that. All right, let's, um, I want to talk to you really quick about an opportunity that is coming up that today is the last day to sign up for the Discipleship Begins at Home conference. And I want to tell you about it in this very quick video, and then I can rest my voice for a minute. I'll be right back. Hey, everyone, everyone, this is Krista Bontrager, also known as Theology Mom. And I want to tell you about an exciting and completely unique opportunity. Now, I know there's a ton of conferences out there. You're scrolling through them in your feed every day. But I want to tell you about a conference that is completely different. This is not your normal conference. This is not a conference where you're just going to come and hear talks and then go away with a lot of good intentions. It's called the Discipleship Begins at Home Conference. It's happening July 23rd and 24th. It's completely virtual. So we want to encourage you to get a group together where you are at your church, your small group, watch it with your spouse and start to get equipped and trained for how to disciple your kids. And it's going to feature some awesome speakers. I'll be speaking. My ministry partner, Monique Dusan will be speaking. Our friend, Elizabeth Urbanovitz. Brian Pauly is going to be there, but I am so excited to introduce you to my friend, Jeremy Bannister, who is going to be doing the plenaries and giving you, empowering every child influencer, parents, Sunday school teachers, whoever you are, grandparents, on the how-tos of discipling your kids. This is going to include not just talks, but strategies, practical step-by-step strategies, along with Jeremy's blueprint for next steps. So you're going to be equipped and trained to know how to disciple your kids. Um, I'm going to be talking about the topic of helping our kids really develop a strong work ethic, teaching our children about money 
and discipling them to think Christianly about these topics. Now, what's also so amazing about this conference is you are going to have the opportunity to register for aftercare. This is going to be like six workshops of group coaching after the conference is over to walk with you as you implement the strategies in your homes. You're going to you're going to take the blueprint, you're going to start to work the steps. We're going to be there alongside you and along the way. So run over to womeninapologetics.com, register now. Early bird pricing ends June 15th. So get there now. This is the Discipleship Begins at Home Conference. I'm going to see you there. Okay, we're back live. Thank you for letting me rest my voice for a minute as I'm still recovering. Um, Next up, we have another Zoom question. We're going to go to Wanda. Welcome. There you go. Now we hear you. We see you. All right. Good. From unknown parts. So what is your question? I'm from Ontario, actually, from Canada. Oh, very good. Um, so my question is, Matthew 6.33 says, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. And if you look at the context of Matthew 6, um, Jesus is talking about, you know, that that the pagans worry about what they're going to eat and drink. God's going to take care of that. And then it says, seek first his kingdom. Um, so I guess my question is, like, as a believer, I don't, I don't wrestle with that, but how do I answer skeptics who ask me, well, what about the people in Africa who are believers, who, who don't have water to drink, who, you know, they don't have clean water to drink, or who don't have food to eat, or who are running around without clothes on because they don't have that? Okay, that's a great question. Uh, well, first of all, about the clothes issue, uh, modesty is a concept that varies from culture to culture. You can ask my ministry partner, Afri- Monique, about that from her travels in Zambia, Um they 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 might not want clothes, <laughs> so we could we could put that one aside. But um, I think it's it's an interesting question, and I'm glad that you asked it because, and I'm glad you were willing to come on so we could talk about it a little bit. Um, it's not one I've ever heard before. Um, has someone asked you this question directly, or is this something you've seen on the internet? Or I'm wondering kind of what prompted this. Uh, no, nobody has asked it, um, but I do have an atheist friend who I try to interact with on a regular basis, and I, this is a hang-up that he has. You know, like, okay. why does God let people suffer? Okay. So um, Matthew 6.33 is actually my verse for the year, and it's because of Mike Winger's um, lesson on it a while back that that I chose it for this year. Um, and so I have it as my cover photo on Facebook, and, and my atheist friend hasn't explicitly asked me about it. But we have conversations about the lack in the world. And, and, and so I know that that's a question that, that I could need to answer one day. That's great. And I love that because the best questions are ones that come from people that we're in actual conversation with. And it causes us to wrestle. I know that I've been on my own journey um, in talking to my brother, who's a member of the LDS church. And he has asked me questions that has challenged me in ways, you know, that I never would have thought of. So those are really the best questions because 
um, the Lord can lead us on our own journey to teach us something through that. And so it's good for you to wrestle with it. And, and maybe I'll say something helpful and maybe I won't, and maybe the Lord will just have you on your own journey with it. But I guess here's kind of a couple of thoughts that came to me as, as I was thinking about it today. Um, I think that it's, it's interesting that your friend, I'm wondering if your friend has an idea about God that um, all needs, like if in order for him to believe in God or in order for this God to exist, there has to almost be like this perfect utopia of all needs being met. And I'm wondering, you know, whether you've explored issues of sin and um, what that looks like, and also um, what Christians have done or might continue to do or increase, you know, our efforts on in providing relief for suffering. I mean, if you look historically, yeah, there's some moments where Christians haven't shown up very well, issues of slavery in our country and that sort of thing. But then Christians have also been greatly influential in the development of hospitals and things like um, relief efforts, uh, the Salvation Army um, running um, efforts to build wells in other countries and get water access. So I'm just wondering how, if you've had those conversations and how he's thought that through on, on, on those issues. Yeah, we've chatted about that a little. Um, and, and he was a Christian for a few years. So okay. like, it's not that it's not that he's unfamiliar with what the Bible says about okay. things. Um, I think for him, I think for him, it's more that that he has a different sense of justice than God. And he, you know, he knows better than God. And, and I think that's where he ends up parting ways with scripture. Yeah. Um, like, and he sees the good that Christians do. Um, but I guess, I guess if I'm looking at Matthew 6, 33, it, it seems to be addressing it on a personal level rather yeah. than on a, a communal level. Like, sure. As an, as an individual, he's saying, don't worry, um, your, your needs will be met. And, yeah. and so, so I guess the, it's just how, how do we deal with it when an individual's needs aren't being met, whether it's because the church isn't seeing it or maybe the church isn't there in that community. Yeah. Or I, I don't know. Yeah. And I think that there's also another thing to keep in mind. First of all, I love it that you, that, you know, there's dialogue happening. And um, I think it's very insightful that you see what the actual root problem is. Mm-hmm is that, you know, he has a different definition of justice. And so that's really the wrestle, you know, you could come forward with answers to this question, but his real wrestle is this thing over here where he's going to have to wrestle through like who is God and the nature of justice and his concept of justice and how he's going to work that through. So that's really probably more of the issue. But I think that it would be interesting. I would, you know, in thinking about um, conversations I've had with Christians in persecuted countries, how they see this, you know, in, in countries where there is a, a lack or scarcity, you know, that many of them, and in the context of this, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a promise to Christians and that Christians will have provision. And when you talk to Christians who live in scarcity, they will 
often be the first to tell you of how God does provide for all of their needs and has provided for them even supernaturally. So God's not making a promise here to a nation or to all humans. He's making a specific promise that he's inviting his people to trust in him for provision. And when you talk to Christians in those difficult situations, they will be among the first to tell you that God does provide for all of their needs. And um, just one little story, uh, when Monique was in Africa, uh, she ran across some guys and they needed money for gas and she didn't have any money. She says, I don't have any money, but I'll pray for your car and I'll pray that God will keep the, the car going and the, and the gas going. And she happened to see these guys months later, they were still driving on the supernatural gas that she had prayed for, for, for their car. And you talk to people in other countries that are Christians and they will tell you stories like that all the time. And so I'm not sure it's a true statement to say that God doesn't provide for his children. And I would want to draw attention to the difference that this is a promise for God's people. So I don't know. That might be a horribly unsatisfying answer, but that's kind of where I landed with it as I was thinking about it today. That sounds good. And and it kind of resonates with me. Um, I read Kisses from Katie. I don't know if you've read um, Katie I've heard Davis's of that book, story. yeah. Yeah. yeah, it was so good. And and she talks in that about how uh, how coming back to North America, she saw spiritual depravity where there was such physical abundance. And in Uganda, there was such physical depravity, but such spiritual abundance yeah. because they had to rely on God for so many of their things. Yeah. So anyways, I'm so glad to meet you. Thank you for being brave and coming on with me. <laughs> yeah, thank you. I'm glad you uh, were brave enough to answer my question. <laughs> It was a good one. Like I said, I hadn't heard that one before. So thank you so much, Wanda. I appreciate it. God bless. All right. Thanks, you too. All right. Bye-bye. Well, that was fun. All right. Two brave people came on Zoom. All right. Let's go back to YouTube. Here we go. Question. In Genesis 1, what does it mean to be made in God's image? And why is this important? Wow. Such a good question, Barbara. Thank you. Um, so big picture answer, you can go on my YouTube channel. I have a playlist called Christian Values in Changing Times. It is a, <laughs> don't, don't panic, but it's a, like a 30 part series on the image of God and, you know, why it's important. So I think it is hugely important, but um, you can go check that out if you want to get resourced for some deeper answers. But in the short answer of what does it mean, I, I want to draw your attention to the fact that to be created in God's image is part of creation, first of all. So it is something that is true of all humans. In Genesis 1, it says, uh, come, let us make humans in our image, male and female. God created them. So it's something that applies to both men and women. And all of humanity. So it is part of the created order. It's not something just for Christians. It's part of the created order. Um, it's also something unique to humans. Only humans are created in the image of God. So as much as you love your, your maybe you love your dog or your cat, um, they are not created in the image of God. And so only humans have this distinction. In the near context of when it's talking about this, 
it talks about the commission that God gives the humans to rule and reign over the earth. And so as the man and the woman are created to be image bearers, they are created to be like governors. They are created to be like mini gods, if you will, to rule and reign the earth on behalf of the creator. So we have been deputized with the authority to rule and reign over the creation. Now that means we have to be good stewards of the creation. We shouldn't be exploiting the creation, rather we, but we do want to harness the creation for the purpose of the Great Commission, to be able to take the gospel into all the earth. So when we think about that, um, we think about being created to reign. When we get to the book of Revelation, we see that in the eternal state, we will reign. And so I think that part of being, a really critical part of being created in the image of God is being created to reign, that that is part of our essential nature as human persons. Another part of our essential nature as human persons is work. Work is something that came before the fall. And I think work is part of subduing and ruling the earth. And that that will be part of what we do in the new creation as we govern things. And so we're, we're told in Corinthians that we will, we will judge the angels. And so we are, we are created with this essential human dignity. And so because of that, um, we might think about things like human rights. And so let's think about if a house was burning down and, you know, like you could only rescue, you know, the humans or the dogs, you know, you want to, you want to rescue the humans um, not that we, we devalue the dogs, but there's something different. There's something sacred about the human person. Now, a few reasons why this matters. Abortion. It answers the abortion question. Why do Christians value life? It's because humans are created in the image of God. Um, when we think about issues related to, to um, race, why do we believe in the essential equality of all human persons? regardless of ethnicity or origin of region or things of that nature. It's because we believe in the dignity of the image of God. So you can go on my YouTube channel. Again, the playlist is called um, Christian Values in Changing Times and hear all of my musings about why the image of God matters. Now, one final word about that. When we fell in Adam, the image of God was marred, but it wasn't lost. It's still there. When we turn the pages to Genesis chapter 9, we see that, that human dignity is still there in spite of the sin. But when we come into um, the new covenant, when we come into a relationship with God and Holy Spirit lives in us, we then become more and more conformed to the image of Christ. So that image that was marred starts to get restored through Christ. And so as we um, preach and take the gospel out in the Great Commission, we are now ruling and reigning the earth on God's behalf, and we will reign in the new creation for all eternity. So I hope that helps you with that issue. All right, we're going to go out to another question. All right, David, concerning spiritual warfare. If you suspect that an adult child living at home is demonically oppressed or possessed, what is the responsible thing to do to protect the home? 
So great question. There's a lot of contingencies here that I'm going to have to give. Um, first of all, it's important that you said it's an adult child. Um, so in the fact that that adult is living in your home means that, you know, they have their own autonomy. They they have made decisions that may have been per, what I call permissions to uh, give the enemy permissions to um, harass them, to interfere with their thought life, uh, possibly diminish their physical health and that sort of a thing. So um, I don't know in this scenario if the person's a Christian, not a Christian. So I'm, I'm going to assume the person is not a Christian for the purposes of this scenario. And um, so what can you do? This person comes in your home, they're bringing with them some, some garbage in the spirit realm with them into your home. Now, another question to consider is, do you have younger children in the home? You know, you're, you can, um, it's not uncommon for people when you have somebody living in the home that has a lot of demonic activity around them, that other people in the home start suffering. Uh, your children, the other children in the home might experience nightmares, night terrors. Um, people in the home might notice um, just a kind of a heavy feeling in the home. And, and that's not, altogether unusual, um, where maybe people are quarreling more. Uh, maybe there's a sense of confusion in the home. Um, if the, if the person is listening to a lot of oppressive, uh, music or in engage, engaging with entertainment that is oppressive and evil and dark, um, that, that can also be a permission and, and bring those things into the home. So the, if you want to have the maximal protection in the home, um, the best thing to do is to get that person either out of the home or pray that they get saved <laughs> um, and indwelt with the power of the Holy Spirit and that they break those agreements and um, they repent. Thank you, Bob. Uh, they repent of their sins because repentance is the ground at which demons start to lose their power. So, <laughs> those are a few thoughts, but um, having a person in your home that is significantly demonized will have an impact on the other people in the home. So uh, it's, it's going to be hard to protect yourself from it. Um, it would be best if you could find a different living situation for that person, or um, hopefully they'll get saved and repent of their sins. I know that's something you don't have any control over. Other than that, um, you can ask for the Holy Spirit's help in dealing with it. Maybe you can kind of piecemeal uh, things by telling the person like, hey, we have rules in our home. We're not going to allow you to play these kinds of programs. We're not going to allow you to listen to this kind of music in the home or use this type of language. Uh, we want to keep our home spiritually pure. Um, you can read the Bible in your home and uh, all together as a family, and hopefully this person would participate. Maybe that will, um, you know, have an impact on them. But it's really, it's really, really tough to do. So that is some thoughts about that issue. Back to YouTube. Simply Grace, with love and respect, I do have issues with the reasons why you left Reformed Theology was seen based on experience rather than the veracity of the core tenets. Well, let me clarify. Thank you, first of all, that kind remark. I left for both reasons. I didn't leave simply because of experience. 
Um, and I think I made that pretty clear, but let me try again. Um, I left for both reasons. I left for the experience issue. But if you listen toward the end of the, the stream, I did talk at length about how my theology changed because I went back and started restudying scripture, restudying church history, and that changed my mind ultimately away from Reformed theology. I left Reformed culture first. Yes, that was an experiential decision. I left Reformed theology because of my study. But I do thank you for your kindness and grace. All right. No, I will not be doing a video on the theological defense for my position because I just feel like there's enough of that out there. And I feel like it causes people to focus on more on what I call denominational distinctives rather than core issues. And I try to spend time on my channel talking mostly about core doctrines and educating people about core issues rather than denominational distinctives. So no, I will not be making a video about that. But you can go check out Mike Winger's videos. He's got a lot of things, um, good and helpful videos along those lines and um, a lot of other channels devoted to that topic. All right. Any wisdom of for parents of children will soon head off to public universities that are steeped liberal and atheistic ideology. Uh, boy. Yeah, Laura's answering it for me. <laughs> yeah, I mean, just try to keep the conversation open. I think the, um, you know, the biggest thing is doing the work ahead of time. I mean, I don't know where you are in your journey, but I mean, really the work that has to be done is before they leave is grounding them solidly in the biblical worldview, having an open line of communication. Um, at this point, um, yeah, there, I mean, if they're already grown, there's really not a lot you can do. Um, but I think the best thing to do is be a good example in learning about your faith and um, reading books and equipping yourself so that, you know, when topics do come up, you will have sort of an, a ready answer to have that conversation with them. So I think the, that probably the best advice I would have is to equip yourself and take time to invest um, in your own education. So without knowing anything more about the situation, I would, Probably be my best advice on that. Facebook. Facebook. I'm interested in your thoughts on women teaching in the church. Do you think women can teach to mix audiences? In what context is this acceptable? Okay, Amy. <laughs> oh, gosh. Boy, guys, you got the tough questions tonight. All right, this is good. Um, so I think that Protestants, all right, Protestants basically have two approaches to this question. There's complementarianism and there's egalitarianism and I've been both um when I was in seminary I was kind of struggling through the complementarian position which basically says if I boil it all down it says that hierarchy is part of the created order and that hierarchy is involves um certain roles and there, there are certain roles designed for men certain roles designed for women that's complementarianism in a nutshell. Apologies for how grossly simplistic that is. On the other side is egalitarianism. And they would say that, that hierarchy or patriarchy is a result of the fall. That God created the man and the woman 
equal from the beginning. He created them to co-rule and reign together and that um, they are both created in his image and that patriarchy is a result of the fall. It's a result of sin. Okay. And so they would see that in the gospel, uh, Holy Spirit comes equally to men and women. And part of that is to overturn the fall. It, as you become more and more conformed to the image of Christ, um, these gender distinctions would be done away with. And it's more based on spiritual gifting in how you serve. Okay. So those are the two basic models. I, one of my problems with egalitarianism right now is that it has been largely the, the major entity that promotes egalitarianism has been largely taken over by feminist critical theory. And I feel like there needs to be a new organization. that's like, I don't know what to call it, but like classical egalitarianism or spiritually spiritual gifts based egalitarianism or something. But I don't recommend going to get connected and getting resourced from that ministry because they have been so penetrated by feminist critical theory that it's, it's not helpful anymore. It's, it's not biblical. And so although I could be persuaded to aspects of the egalitarian position, I don't ever advocate anymore. I did used to, but I haven't for a number of years to go get resourced with those entities. The way that complementarianism plays out, I, which I, I see, I see arguments on both sides and, but unfortunately the way that complementarianism often plays out is that it ends up in the practical level being more about like this, this idea of, um, well, let's make a list of all the things women can't do. And it ends up becoming this like weird form of legalism where you have all of these arbitrary rules about like, when can, when do women have to stop teaching boys in Sunday school and can, what can women do and can they take the offering collection or not? And can they read scripture in the service or not? And can they serve as children's pastors or not? And so you get in this really weird world where there's just a lot of energy around rules, which seems peculiar to me. And so I do think that hierarchy is part of the created order in the sense that men and women are different. Like, can we just agree that men and women are different? They're just different. They're not the same. They're not interchangeable. A husband and wife are not interchangeable to their children. There's something metaphysically different about being a man versus being a woman. And the family structure is part of the created order. It's not a result of the fall. So I can see a case for a form of hierarchy of parents being over children and the man and the woman being different, but also fundamentally the same as in they're both created in the image of God and they have the same essential human dignity and they have been created to co-rule and reign over the earth and the Holy Spirit possesses them both. 
and they both have spiritual gifts. And there's no verse that says that, that these are the spiritual gifts for women and these are the spiritual gifts for men. So the place I'm at right now in my 30-year journey on this question is that there's a difference in the local church between offices and spiritual gifts. There's no spiritual gift that I can find that says only men do these things. Only men get these gifts. Only women get these gifts. But as far as offices go, and by offices, I mean specifically an elder, um, those seem to be for, for men, um, as to, to the best of my knowledge in Bible study. I am persuaded that, that there is kind of this office of deaconess who can serve as a ser- servant in the church. And historically, that has been true. But women, historically, were never bishops. There were no women apostles, or no, no, no women among the 12. There were women apostles, but they were not part of the 12. So I look at the 12 as being an office and the elders descended from, from that office. But in terms of being missionaries, being evangelists, preaching the gospel, having the Holy Spirit, teaching, those are spiritual gifts, not offices. I could be wrong. I could be very wrong. Like I said, I've been in this journey for 30 years and that's where I'm at right now. That's where I'm at. Okay. Sure. One more question. Hopefully that was helpful. I'm starting, hoping to start seminary in the fall. What seminaries would you recommend? Uh, SES. That's a very easy answer. It's the only seminary I'm recommending. It's a very short list. I would not recommend Gordon-Cottonwell. All right. Okay, Exodus 13 talks about God marking his chosen people to serve as a reminder of what he'd done for them in delivering Egypt. He places the emphasis of the sign on their hand, what they do, and on their forehead. Same language as Revelation chapter 13. Yes, Cassie, my husband and I were just reading this the other day in our family devotions, and I made the same observation. I said, this reminds me of the account in Revelation of when God marked his people and then the counterfeit of the mark of the beast on the same page there. Okay. I think that's it for now. I hope you've enjoyed this Palooza, whatever this was. And I do want to encourage you this week to watch all the things. Uh, We're going to have a special Juneteenth episode with Dr. Harold Felder. He's a new friend that we're excited to introduce our listeners to. And his specialty is in dealing with questions that are often a struggle for our African-American friends. There are certain questions that they have. Um, For for example, what does the Bible teach about slavery? Is Christianity a white man's religion? Are there any Africans in the Bible? You know, there are struggles that our African-American brothers and sisters struggle with. Um, And if you want to share your faith with someone who's an African-American, it really helps to be conversant on some of these issues So Dr. Harold Felder is coming on our show and he's going to talk to us about the question, what does the Bible teach about slavery? And I do want to commend to you this very fine book, The African-American Guide to the Bible. And it looks like this because there's two books on Amazon that have a similar name. And I want to make sure that you get the right one. It is this one. And um, 
some people that I've shared this with have been kind of turned off by the title, but really what the book is about is uh, Dr. Felder's very important project of trying to help um, our African-American friends uh, try to help remove some of the obstacles that they have to faith and helping to reassure them that uh, Christianity is not simply for white people. So it's a, it's a wonderful resource. And as I close out, I want to tell you about a major life transition that I'm going through right now. Um, I have, I'm in the process of leaving my full-time job and I'm very excited to be working uh, very soon going full-time at the Center for Biblical Unity and to go on a great adventure with my husband. Uh, We always have enjoyed working in ministry together in the last 10 years. We haven't gotten to do as much of that as we had hoped, but um, it's looking like we're going to kind of be together again and, you know, just doing these videos and having his help with me is awesome. And so I'm going to be going over to the Center for Biblical Unity and Bob and I are taking this this leap of faith together and coming over to help Monique full time. And so if you would like to be part of our support team, I want to thank those of you who've already stepped up to help support me. Um, There's a special box you can go to now on the Center for Biblical Unity donation page where you can select um, to support me as a monthly partner. When you go to the drop-down menu here, it'll say give to the general fund. If you just click on that arrow, there's Krista's salary, and you can choose that as an option. So if you'd like to support Bob and I on an ongoing basis, we would be very grateful, you know, only if the Holy Spirit prompts you, you know, no coercion or anything. We're here to bless you, help you, educate you. And um, but if the Holy Spirit is moving in your heart to come alongside us and help support us, we would be honored to have you do that. And again, thank you to those of you who have already done that. And um, it's a scary time. It's an exciting time. Um, As our kids are grown, we're kind of becoming empty nesters and just moving into this new space. So that's all for now. Uh, I hope that you've enjoyed the live stream and that it's been helpful to you. May God bless you and good night. Be sure to follow Theology Mom on Facebook and like, comment, and subscribe on YouTube. Don't forget to catch Krista next week for more theology fun on Theology Mom and all the things. Thanks for listening.